Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. I am Nube, your host of Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. I want to give a shout out to this amazing radio station. I'll tell you, you know, to hold together a uh, space for for the people at a time where um, we're, we're getting so little support for, um, you know, the resources that we need to be, to, to have some level of health and mind, body, and spirit. Um, and then we have to just rely on the people, places like KPOO, that um, become essential, right? I mean, they've always been essential, but I think it's magnified, especially during um, these past couple of years with the pandemic and also, uh, you know, feelings of isolation. But the fact is the, the pandemic is not over um, and we've discovered that there are um, there are some very serious pandemics that have been happening uh, for quite a long time, centuries, racism. Uh, so, uh, again, I just I really want to give a shout out to this radio station and everybody that keeps it together and all of the programmers um, every uh, for everything that you do uh, to keep the people uh feeling like they are being heard, and uh, for us especially here at uh, Prison Focus Radio to be able to have this very precious hour to bring forth the voices of um, our loved ones, our community members, our freedom fighters, um, our people that have just been railroaded by the system and continually abused for, um, quote, crimes um, and really just uh, criminalized for being poor, for being um, um, mentally unstable um, by a system that has created these conditions. Uh, so to be able to bring forth their voices um, for encouragement and inspiration and and re- realizing that we have people inside, we are caging genius, we are caging wisdom, we are, uh, um, you know, the, the, um, the conditions of the prisoners of the United States are forget it, um, of America with three Ks. We are not United States here, um, but this is America with three Ks, Inc., really. Um, But, you know, we are are caging our elders. Uh, Thinking about the the immorality, if that's a a word that comes, that is in your vocabulary um, and how you express... But thinking about how we treat our elders in this country as well, um, it says so much. I mean, just that, you you know, people can kind of justify all day long about, you know, why people are in prison. But to be caging people um, from their youth until their uh, elder years really should just be called a sickness and it is a crime against humanity and a form of genocide. So uh, with that said, we are going to continue with our, um, our support and love for Sundiata Akoli, who has been, we found out he is going to be released finally uh, after almost uh, over 40 years. I think we might be going on, on 50, but he hasn't come home yet that I know of. And so uh, we're going to continue with him. We are going to uh, finish the uh, a brief history of the new African prison struggle that he wrote back in October of 2019. Um, so we were going to con- continue with that article. 
And um, we're also going to hear from some other um, brothers that are... Um, Shakabuna is coming home, so we'll hear a little bit about him. And uh, I think we're going to also... I'm going to bring in um, Comrade Pitt, Peter Mercuria. And I think he's in Ohio. And... Um, and then, of course, we're always going to, I want to give a shout out uh, to all of our uh, new African brothers who are still inside of the, our freedom fighters, our elder freedom fighters from the California hunger strikes. So uh, stay with me and uh, we're going to get right to it. All right, I'm just going to read uh, the first part of Sundiata Akoli's bio from his website, sundiataakoli.org. Uh, just to give a little context for people that don't know who he is, because apparently we don't have political prisoners here in America with three Ks. Sundiata Akoli, a new African political prisoner of war, mathematician, and computer analyst, was born January 14, 1937, in Decatur, Texas, and raised in Vernon, Texas. He graduated from Prairie View A&M College of Texas in 1956, with a B.S. in mathematics, and for the next 13 years worked for various computer-oriented firms, mostly in the New York area. During the summer of 1964, he did voter registration worked work in Mississippi. In 1968, he joined the Harlem Black Panther Party and did community work around issues of schools, housing, jobs, child care, drugs, and police brutality. These are the kinds of things that will get um, our new African uh, freedom fighters um, targeted by the police, of course. In 1969, he and 13 others were arrested in the Panther 21 conspiracy case. He was held in jail without bail and on trial for two years before being acquitted, along with all other defendants, by a jury deliberating less than two hours. There is more uh, to his story if you want to go to, again, sundiataakoli.org. All right, and then because we have mentioned um, the very significant Panther 21 trial that um, Sundiata Akoli was a part of. So there are 20 other defendants, and Afeni Shakur, who is now an ancestor and the late mother of Tupac Shakur, was one of those defendants as well. So um, I found through Freedom Archives, and you can go there yourself to freedomarchives.org, and I want to give a shout out to this amazing organization, um, some uh, audio of Afeni Shakur talking about uh, a couple of things, but it's during the trial of the uh, Panther Party. And in this particular uh, segment, she's talking about the solidarity during the Panther 21 trial. So uh, here we go. We're going to hear from Afeni Shakur. And this is from 1972. no matter what barriers keep going to those trials, you know, anyway, then it, it would be good, because it would be a good effect on the jury. They thought we were good people, because so many other people thought we, we were good people, because people had faith in us. They had enough faith to come to the trial every day for eight months. So the jury understood that. So I kind of think that if, if people here would just make those efforts to, to just go there, even if it was like schools, school kids used to come to court, schools that, that um, Maybe the prosecution might have had his kids in. And there was a liberal teacher there. And the liberal teacher brought her, her class down. And that affects the prosecution. Because he gets nervous. He gets much more nervous 
seeing a, a class full of white kids there than he does seeing a class full of black kids there. Because then he still thinks that he has that responsibility of showing those little white kids that the prosecution of the state of New York are all good people and that this is the way we act. It's this, this, the same thing. But then people here, I understand, are just frightened and for good reason because if you have a traffic ticket, you're going to jail. But then on the other hand, there are enough people here who could go to that trial. And the people that could go, they should go all the time. People have these really mixed views about guards and, and medicine. And some prison struggles um, that there are a number of guards who show their sympathy for, for the struggles inside. Obviously, they do it in concealed ways because their jobs are threatened. But, uh, for example, in Angela's latest book, there's a letter from a guard to Angela saying how she admired her and how Angela was an inspiration for her and so on. And I wondered if there's anything similar that you met in a house of detention or from bailiffs or from some of the lower functions. When Fred Hansen got killed, I was in jail, you know. And um, it was very painful, you know. And me and Joan and some women in, in the jail went on um, a fast more than a strike. We just didn't eat and stuff. We, we drank liquids. And about seven guards in the house of detention quietly went on a fast with us, you know. Because they, they, just, they just kept coming to us saying that there was nothing else that they could do. And that the least that they could do was fast with us, you know, to show that they really felt that, you know. And it, it's like that a lot, you know. They used to bring us books in and things like that. But then there are guards, there are other guards see, who, who, are, who are pigs, who are just total pigs. And the way I see it is that the guard himself has the, the obligation to prove that he's a human being. Some of them, it's like you say, that they always know that their jobs are at stake, you know? But see, that's a decision that they have to make about how they can help. But if they're sincere, you know, and, 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 and not wanting to be a part of that, then they'll find ways to do that, and they'll find ways to make you know that. I don't even care about um, somebody telling me that they're in solidarity with me. They always walk up to your cell and say, it's not me, and I, I'm really in sympathy with you. I don't care about what you say, it's what you do. It's like, you might leave my light on one night for 10 minutes longer so I can finish writing a writ, you know? And that helps me. It's like uh, Myra says in that, it helps the revolution. Helps the revolutionary, helps the revolution. And that's, that's all that matters, you know? If they don't help, then it doesn't matter about what class they come from or what class. It, it, it's of no consequence. I don't give up about what class they come from. I care about what they're going to do in terms of the revolution but whether or not they're going to be a hindrance or a help. Ah, yes, ancestor queen of Fenice Shakur, revolutionary freedom fighter, given us powerful words of wisdom so relevant today as they were um, over 50 years ago. All right, we are going to hear more from Fenice Shakur on racial solidarity in prisons. Sam Melville, you know, in a sense that they had a real respect for him. 
you know, as, as revolutionary, you know, and as leader of revolution. So it was never, I don't think, with Sam, with, with um, people like um, LT or LD, it was never a question of, of, you know, whether or not Sam could mix. It was whether or not they, they could get together with Sam and all of them could get together and take care of what they had to take care of, you know. And when you're about taking care of some real concrete business, that really is all you're concerned with. I know that I wouldn't be, con be so concerned about racial inferiority. The thing is that they were involved in a battle. And when you're involved in a battle, all you care about is who can help you win the battle. White people in jail are, are beginning to find out, to understand that um, they're going to get killed. They're in the same position to get killed, you know. And all it takes is, is, is the flick of a trigger finger. There's just no way, you know for us to try and fool ourselves into saying that we're all the same because we're not, but we do have the same problem. And we have the same problem that we can unite on the basis of trying to get rid of the same problem. Do you consider it important to get across to white America um, the idea of political prisoners? Just before the end of the trial, like on um, February 8th, I got put back in jail, you know, and like a the week that I got put back in jail was like the heaviest undercover agent in the, in the case was on, on the stand and I didn't feel like cross-examining him, you know. And this liberal, this white man is a liberal and about 50 years old. He sent me a note one day in court, you know, and he said, Fanny, I think that no matter how you feel, that you should cross-examine Ralph White because it's your responsibility to let white people see, white people on that jury see that there's a difference between black people just in a basic difference between black people, you know. And I understood what that man meant. Like, I did cross him them and write Ralph White, and I'm really glad I did, you know. To be tolerant of the fact that, that our parents, white parents, black parents, just don't understand what we mean when we say political prisoners. But then you should be able to explain to your parents over and over again what a political prisoner is and why we call them political prisoners, why everybody that's in jail is a political prisoner. Because it's not an easy thing to understand. And one day it'll click in their mind and they'll understand. All right. With that, I think it's a perfect time to pivot into reading The Agreement to End Hostilities. I think the greatest show, most powerful and impactful show of solidarity since uh, the Attica Rebellion. Um, and so uh, that was uh, put together by uh, the four geographical and racial groups that existed in uh, the California prisons, uh, all coming together to create this document. Uh, so we are going to read it. This was uh, put out um, in the year of 2012, uh, before or uh, uh, right after the first of three hunger strikes. Uh, and it was very, it was very prescient because they knew that they were going to need to have this solidarity amongst the prisoners in order for the uh, success of the hunger strikes uh, to be had. So here we go. Dated August 12, 2012. To whom it may concern and all California prisoners. Greetings from the entire PBSP Shoe Short Corridor Hunger Strike representatives. We are hereby presenting this mutual agreement on behalf of all racial groups here in the Pelican Bay State Prison Shoe Corridor, wherein we have arrived at a mutual agreement concerning the following points. 
One, if we really want to bring about substantive, meaningful changes to the CDCR system, that's the California Department of Corrections Small R Rehabilitation, in a manner beneficial to all solid individuals who have never been broken by CDCR's torture tactics intended to coerce one to become a state informant via debriefing, that now is the time for us to collectively seize this moment in time and put an end to more than 20 to 30 years of hostilities between our racial groups. Two, therefore, beginning on October 10th, 2012, all hostilities between our racial groups in the shoe of security housing units, ADSEG, general population and county jails will officially cease this means that from this date on, all racial group hostilities need to be at an end. And if personal issues arise between individuals, people need to do all they can to exhaust all diplomatic means to settle such disputes. Do not allow personal individual issues to escalate into racial group issues. Three, we also want to warn those in general population that IGI, institutional gang investigators, will continue to plant undercover sensitive needs yards, uh, sensitive needs yard debriefer inmates among the solid GP prisoners with orders from IGI to be informers, snitches, rats and obstructionists in order to attempt to disrupt and undermine our collective group's mutual understanding on issues intended for our mutual causes, i.e. forcing CDCR to open up all GP main lines and return to a rehabilitative type system of meaningful programs and privileges, including life or conjugal visits, etc., via peaceful protest activity and non-cooperation, such as hunger strikes, no labor, etc., People need to be aware and vigilant to such tactics and refuse to allow such IGI inmate snitches to create chaos and reignite hostilities amongst our racial groups. We can no longer play into IGI, ISU, the Investigative Service Unit, OCS, Office of Correctional Safety, and SSU's Service Security Units, old manipulative divide and conquer tactics, exclamation point. In conclusion, we must all hold strong to our mutual agreement from this point on and focus our time, attention, and energy on mutual causes beneficial to all of us. Prisoners! and our best interests. We can no longer allow CDCR to use us against each other to their benefit! Exclamation point. Because the reality is that collectively we are an empowered, mighty force that can positively change this entire corrupt system into a system that actually benefits prisoners and thereby the public as a whole. And we simply cannot allow CDCR and CCPOA, the Prison Guards Union, IGI, ISU, OCS, and SSU to continue to get away with their constant form of progressive oppression and warehousing of tens of thousands of prisoners, including the 14,000 plus prisoners held in solitary confinement, torture chambers, shoe and ADSEC units for decades. We send our love and respect to all of those like mind of like mind and heart onward in struggle and solidarity presented by the PBSP shoe short corridor collective. And almost all of these men are still caged. Sitawanantambu Jama'a, Todd Ashker, Arturo Castellanos, Antonio Guillen, Danny Troxel, George Franco, Ronnie Yandel, 
Paul Red, who is has come home to us, James Baridi Williamson, Alfred Sandoval, Louis Powell, Alex Yergoyen, Gabriel Huerta, Frank Clement, Raymond Chavo Perez, who is now passed on to the ancestors, and his brother, James Mario Perez. And this is what they have always said, and this is part of the document. All names and the foregoing statement must be shown verbatim when used and posted on any website or other publication. All right. And if you want to know more about the historic California hunger strikes that culminated in 30,000 people participating from behind the walls, ended indefinite solitary confinement. I mean, these brothers were subjected to the torture of solitary confinement for decades. A very specific kind of solitary confinement out of the notorious Pelican Bay State Prison uh, security housing units meant to break them. If you want to find out more about this, you can find everything you need by going to www.prisons.org. That is the California Prison Focus website. And also um, read the writings um, at the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper at www.sfbayview.com. Both of those publications uh, give ample voice to our people inside. Okay, we are going to take a quick musical break and then we are going to get into the um, second part of the reading of uh, Sundiata's A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle. Last night, people protesting in Minneapolis escalated as demonstrators were lashed by tear gas and rubber bullets. The main message here, the main message the here, main message here, is that they want to see those officers involved. They want to see those officers arrested. Officers arrested. Arrest, arrest, arrest. Trade my 4x4 for a GC3, ain't no more fearless deep. I gave him chance, a chance, a chance again. I even told him, please. I find it crazy the police to shoot you and know that you did, but still tell you to freeze. Nope, I seen what I seen. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They killing us for no reason. Been going on for too long to get even. Throw us in cages like dogs and hyenas. I went to court and they sent me to prison. My mama was pissed when they said I can't leave. First I was drunk, then I sobered up quick when I heard all that time that they gave it to Talib. He got a license plus. We just some products of our environment, how the f*** they gon' blame us? You can't fight fire with fire, I know, but at least we can turn off the flames on. Every color person ain't dumb, and all whites not racist. I be judging by the mind and heart, I ain't really in the face. Though the way that we living is not getting better, you gotta know how to survive. Crazy, I had to tell all of my lovers to carry a gun when they going outside. Stay in the mirror whenever you drive, overprotective, go crazy for mine. You gotta pay attention to the sign, seem like the blind following the blind.
it, I'm going on the front line. He gon' bust your till you cop at that gun line. You know when the storm go away, then the sunshine. Got put your head in the game when it's crazy. I want all my sons to grow up to be monsters. I want all my daughters to show how to fuck it. Seem like we losing our country, but we gotta stand up for something. So this what it comes to. Every video I see on my country, I got power now. I gotta say something. Cause bro, the police been the problem where I'm from, but I'll be lying if I said it was all of them. I ain't do this for the trend, I don't follow them. Altercation with the law had a lot of them. People speaking for the people, I'm proud of them. Stick together, we can get it up out of them. I can't lie like I don't rap about killing and dope, but I'm telling my youngest to vote. I deal with I diggers, I damn no trust and no hope. I was forced to just jump in and go. This bullshit is all that we know, but it's time for a change. Got time to be serious, no time for no gang. Ain't taking no more, let us go for them chains. God bless they sold everyone in them names. It's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. It can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere. Might as well go ahead and start here. We didn't have a hell of a year. I'ma make it count why I'm here. God is the only man I fear. Training officers, the killers, then shooting protesters with these rubber bullets. They regular people, I know that they feel it. These scars too deep, they heal us. What happened to COVID? Nobody remember it, ain't making sense. I'm just here to vent. It happened to one of your people, it's different. We get it, the system is wicked, just learn how to pick it. Knowledge is power, I swear I'm a witness. I know that I'm gifted, I won't go too deep, cause I'm scared they'll get me. Ain't scared to admit it, some I can't mention. It's people who can, well, here's the chance. I won't take the stand, but I'll take a stand for what I believe. Must not be breathing the air that I breathe. You know that the way that I bleed, you can be. I never been a fan of police, but my neighborhood, no. I try to keep peace, so it's only right that I get in the streets. Much for a reason, I just on GP. How people die for us to be free. So do you mean this was a dream? Now we got the power that we need to have. They don't want us with it, and that's why they mad. Yeah. It's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. It can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere. Might as well go ahead and start here. We didn't have a hell of a year. I'ma make it count why I'm here. God is the only man I fear. It's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. It can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere. Might as well go ahead and start here. We didn't have a hell of a year. I'ma make it count why I'm here. God is the only man I fear. Mm-hmm. All right. That was The Bigger Picture by Lil Baby. All right. Let's get into the second half of A Brief history of the new African prison struggle by Sundiata Akoli, who we hope will be coming home soon. This was written on November 30th, 1995. All right, so we left off um, under the heading, The Emergence of Independent African Nations, and a quote by Malcolm X, which I will read here, and then we will get into uh, the next segment. From 1954, to 1964 can easily be looked upon as the era of the emerging African state. And as the African state emerged, what effect did it have on the black American? When he saw the black man on the African continent taking a stand, it made him become filled with the desire to also take a stand. Just as the U.S. had to change their approach with the people on the African continent, they also began to change their approach with our people on this continent. As they used tokenism on the African continent, they began to do the same thing with us here in the States. Tokenism. Every move they made was a token move. They came up with a Supreme Court desegregation decision that they haven't put into practice yet, not even in Rochester, much less in Mississippi. And of course, that was to applause. And then we're going to go into the origin of the civil rights movement. On December 1st, 1955, Miss Rosa Parks defied Montgomery, Alabama's bus segregation laws by refusing to give her seat to 
to a white man. Her subsequent arrest and the ensuing mass bus, bus boycott by the Montgomery New African community kicked off the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr., a young college-educated Baptist minister, was chosen to coordinate and lead this boycott primarily because he was a new arrival in town, intelligent, respected, and had not yet accumulated a list of grudge enemies as had the old guard. His selection for leadership catapulted him upon the stage of history. The 381-day-long boycott toppled Montgomery's bus segregation codes. A year later, in 1957, Ghana became the first of a string of sub-Saharan African nations to be granted independence. As northern discrimination, bulging ghettos, and the drug influx were setting off a rise in new African numbers behind the walls, southern segregation, the emergence of independent African nations, and the resulting civil rights movement provided those increasing numbers with the general political agenda. Equality and anti-discrimination. Civil rights through the black power era. Religious struggles in prison. Meanwhile, behind the walls, small segments of the new African population began rejecting Western Christianity. They returned to Islam as preached by Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam, NOI, and no Noble Drew Ali's Muslim Science Temple of America, MST. The NOI preached that Islam was the true religion of black people and that blacks in America were a nation needing land and independence. The MST preached that the Asiatic black people in America must proclaim their nationality as members of the ancient Moors of Northern Africa. These new religious religions produce significant success rates in helping new African prisoners rehabilitate themselves by instilling them with a newfound sense of pride, dignity, piety, and industriousness. Yet these religions seemed strange and thus threatening to prison officials. They moved forthwith to suppress these religions, and many early Muslims were viciously persecuted, beaten, and even killed for practicing their beliefs. The Muslims fought back fiercely. Civil rights struggles in prison. Like American society, the prisons were rigidly segregated. New Africans were relegated to perform the heaviest and dirtiest jobs, farm work, laundry work, dishwashing, garbage disposal, and were restricted from jobs as clerks, straw bosses, electricians, or any position traditionally reserved for white prisoners. Similar discriminatory rules applied to all other areas of prison life. New Africans were restricted restricted to live in certain cell blocks or tiers, eat in certain areas of the mess hall, and sit in the back at the movies, TV room, and other recreational facilities. Influenced by the anti-discrimination aspects of the civil rights movement, a growing number of new Africans behind the walls began stepping up their struggle against discrimination in prison. Audacious new Africans began violating long-standing segregation codes by sitting in the front seats at the movies, mess halls, or TV areas, and more than a few died from shanks in the back. Others gave as good as they got and better. Additionally, new Africans began con contesting discriminatory job and housing policies and other biased conditions. Many were set up for attack and sent to the hole for a year or worse. Those who were viewed as leaders were dealt with most harshly. Most of this violence came from prison officials and white prisoners protecting their privileged positions. 
Some violence also came from New Africans and Muslims protecting their lives, taking stands, and fighting back. From these silent, unheralded battles against racial and religious discrimination in prisons emerged the new African liberation struggle behind the walls during the 1950s civil rights era. Eventually, the courts, influenced by the equality and anti-discrimination aspect of the civil rights movement, would rule that prisons must recognize the Muslim religion on an equal footing with other accepted religions and that prison racial discrimination codes must be outlawed. Oh, I just love our people. Okay, Black Power Through the Black Liberation Era. As the civil rights movement advanced into the 60s, new African college students waded into the struggle with innovative lunch counter sit-ins, freedom rides, and voter registration projects. <coughs> the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, let me say that again. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Com Committee was formed during this period to coordinate and instruct student volunteers in nonviolent methods of organizing voter registration projects and other civil rights work. These energetic young students and the youth in general served as the foot soldiers of the movement. They provided indispensable services, support, and protection to local community leaders such as Mississippi's Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, and other heroines and heroes of the civil rights movement. Although they met with measured success, white racist atrocities mounted daily on defenseless civil rights workers. Young new Africans in general began to grow increasingly disenchanted with the nonviolent philosophy of Martin Luther King. Many began to look increasingly toward Malcolm X, the fiery young minister of NOI Temple No. 7, in Harlem, New York, he called for self-defense, freedom by any means necessary, and land and independence. As Malcolm Little, he had been introduced to the NOI doctrine while imprisoned in Massachusetts. Upon release, he traveled to Detroit to meet with Elijah Muhammad, converted to Islam, and was given the surname X to replace his discarded slave master's name. The X symbolized his original surname lost to history when his foreparents were kidnapped from Africa, stripped of their names, language, and identity, and enslaved in the Americas. As Malcolm X, he became one of Elijah Muhammad's most dedicated disciples and rose to national minister and spokesperson for the NOI. His keen intellect, incorruptible integrity, staunch courage, clear resonant oratory, sharp debating skills, and superb organizing abilities soon brought the NOI to a position of prominence within the black ghetto colonies across the U.S. In 1963, or in 63, he openly called the March on Washington a farce. He explained that the desire for a mass march on the nation's capital originally sprang from the black grassroots, the average black man and woman in the streets. It was their way of demonstrating a mass black demand for jobs and freedom. As momentum grew for the march, President Kennedy called a meeting of the leaders of the sixth largest civil rights organization dubbed the Big Six, National, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and a NAACP, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, National Urban League, NUL, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and asked them to stop the proposed march. 
they answered saying that they couldn't stop it because they weren't leading it. It didn't start it and that it had sprung from the masses of black people. If they weren't leading the march, the president decided to make them the leaders by distributing huge sums of money to each of the big six, publicizing their leading roles in the mass media and providing them with a script to follow regarding the staging of the event. The script planned the march down to the smallest detail. Oh God, this is amazing history. Thank you, Sundiata Akoli. Malcolm explained that government officials told the big six what time to begin the march, where to march, who could speak at the march, and who could not. Generally, what could be said and what could not, what signs to carry, where to go to the toilets provided by the government, and what time to end the event and get out of town. The script was followed to a T, and most of the 200,000 marchers were never the wiser. God, wow, that's the, the history of the co-opting to the by the liberals. Here we were. Oh, my God. By then, SNCC's membership was also criticizing the march as too moderate and decrying the violence between the uh, sweeping the South. History ultimately proved Malcolm's claim of farce correct through books published by participants in the planning of the march and through exposure of government documents on the matter. All right. Origin of the Five Percenters. Clarence 13X Smith was expelled from Harlan's Nation of Islam Temple Number no. 7 in 1963 because he wouldn't conform to NOI practices. He frequently associated with the numerous street gangs that abounded in New York City at the time and felt that the NOI didn't put enough effort into recruiting these youth. After being expelled, he actively recruited among these street gangs and other wayward youth, and by 64, he had established his own movement called the Five Percenters. The name comes from their belief that 85% of black people are like cattle, who continue to eat the poisoned animal, the pig, are blind to the truth of God, and continue to give their allegiance to people who don't have their best interests at heart. That 10% of black people are bloodsuckers, the politicians, preachers, and other parasitic individuals who get rich off the labor and ignorance of the docile exploited 85%, and that the remaining 5% are the poor righteous teachers of freedom, justice, and equality who know the truth of the black God and are not deceived by the practices of the blood-sucking 10%. The 5%er movement spread through the New York State prison system and the black ghettos of the New York metropolitan area. Origin of the New World Nation of Islam. In December 1965, Newark's mayor, Hugh Adonizio, Adonizio witnessed a getaway car pulling away from a bank robbery and ordered his chauffeur to follow with siren blasting. The fleeing robbers crashed into a telephone pole, sprang from their car, and fired a shot through the mayor's windshield. He screeched to a halt, and police cars racing to the scene captured Muhammad Ali Hassan, known as Albert Dickens, and James Washington, both were regular attendees of Newark's NOI Temple Number no. 25, headed by Minister James 3X Shabazz. Ali Hassan and Washington were members of the New World Nation of Islam, NWI. Ali Hassan, its leader and supreme field commander, 
dates the birth of the New World Nation of Islam to February 26, 1960. He states that on that date, Elijah Muhammad authorized the New World Nation of Islam under the leadership of Field Supreme Minister Fard's savior and declared that the field minister had authority over all the NOI Muslims. Ali Hassan and Washington were convicted for bank robbery and sent to Trenton State Prison. The NWI's belief in the supreme authority of Fard Savior was rejected by NOI Minister Shabazz, and thereafter an uneasy peace prevailed between the followers of Shabazz, who retained control of Newark's NOI Temple Number 25, and the followers of the NWI, who sought to gain control. Meanwhile, Ali Hassan published a book titled Uncle Yaya and ran the NWI from his prison cell. Along with the more established and influential NOI, the influence of the NWI spread throughout the New Jersey state prison system and the metropolitan uh, Jersey ghettos. The NWI began setting up food co-ops, barbershops, houses to teach Islam, and printing presses. They purchased land in South Carolina, all in furtherance of creating an independent black nation. Okay, woo, I love this. Okay, we are now in part two, the Black Liberation Era. All right, before we begin part two, the Black Liberation Era, I really want to give a shout out to the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. Um, full disclosure, I am now the current editor, but long before I got here, um, the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper has been chronicling um, and um, uh, providing, what do you call it? They've been, obviously, they've been publishing these amazing stories. They have been published, they have been printed, and that is why we now get to hear this amazing uh, brief history of the new African prison uh, struggle. This is so exciting, and I just want you to know that I am also reading this for the first time. I love... Um, having the, um, you know, the initial response, um, like the rest of you who have not been able to hear this. So again, thank you to the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper, Dr. Willie Ratcliffe and Mary Ratcliffe for holding this newspaper down and um, being able to uh, create these archives of this incredible um, history written by the people on the inside. And again, uh, this is uh, by Sundiata Akoli, written in 1995, and uh, he is hopefully coming home soon after almost 50 years, I believe. I could be wrong on that part. Okay, Black Panthers usher in the Black Liberation Movement. Mid-stride the 60s, on February 24th, 1965, Malcolm was assassinated, but his car star continued to rise and his seeds fell on fertile soil. The following year, October 1966, in Oakland, California, Huey P. Newton and a handful of armed youths founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense on principles that Malcolm had preached, and the Black Liberation Movement was born. Subsequently, the name was shortened to the Black Panther Party, and a 10-point program was created which stated, one, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Two, we want full employment for our people. Three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. Four, we want decent housing, 
fit for the shelter of human beings. Five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches our true history and our role in the present day society. Six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer, group, or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Ten, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And as our major political objective, a United Nations supervised plebiscite to be held throughout the black colony in which only black colonial subjects will be allowed to participate for the purpose of determining the will of black people as to their national destiny. Woo! The Panthers established numerous programs to serve the Oakland ghetto. Free breakfast for children, free health care, free daycare, and free political education classes. The program that riveted the ghetto's attention was their campaign to stop police murder and brutality of blacks. Huey, a community college pre-law student, discovered that it was legal for citizens to openly carry arms in California. With that assurance, the Black Panther Party began armed car, armed car patrols of the police cruisers that patrolled Oakland's black colony. When a cruiser stopped to make an arrest, the Panther car stopped. They fanned out around the scene, arms at the ready and observed, tape recorded, and recommended a lawyer to arrest the victim. Oh. oh, sorry. And recommended a lawyer to the arrest victim. I thought I had that wrong. Also, before I continue, I also just want to say to Sundiata, thank you so much for using this beautiful language, uh, black colony. So here we are in, in 2022, and we're really f been focusing on uh, decolonization programs. Uh, okay. It didn't take long for the police to retaliate. They confronted Huey late one night near his home. Gunfire erupted, leaving Huey critically wounded, a policeman dead and another wounded. The Panthers and the Oakland Bay community responded with a massive campaign to save Huey from the gas chamber. The California Senate began a hearing to rescind the law permitting citizens to openly carry arms within city limits. The Panthers staged an armed demonstration during the hearing at the Sacramento Capitol to protest the Senate's action, which gained national publicity. That publicity, together with the Panthers' philosophy of revolutionary nationalism, self-defense, and the Free Huey campaign, catapulted the BPP to nationwide prominence. Oh, but not without cost. During August 1967, J. Edgar Hoover issued his infamous counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, memorandum directing the FBI and local police officials to disrupt specified black organizations and neutralize their leaders so as to prevent the rise of a black messiah. Let me say this one again, but not without cost. During August 1967, J. Edgar Hoover issued his infamous counterintelligence program memorandum directing the FBI and local police officials to disrupt specified black organizations and neutralize. Just a euphemism for 
murder, their leaders so as to prevent the rise of a black messiah. Attacks increase on revolutionaries. The Panthers rolled eastward, establishing offices in each major, major northern ghetto. As they went, they set up revolutionary programs in each community that were geared to provide community control of schools, tenant control of slum housing, free breakfast for school children, free health, daycare and legal clinics, and free political education classes for the community. They also initiated campaigns to drive dope pushers and drugs from the community and campaigns to stop police murder and brutalizing of blacks. As they went about the community organizing these various programs, they were frequently confronted, attacked, or arrested by the police, and some were even killed during these encounters. Which is exactly what's happening to this day. It just looks a little different. Or not. Other revolutionary organizers suffered similar entrapments. The Revolutionary Action Movements, RAM, Herman Ferguson and Max Stanford were arrested in 1967 on spurious charges of conspiring to kill civil rights leaders. In the same year, Amiri Baraka, the poet and playwright Leroy Jones, was arrested for transporting, transporting weapons in a van during the Newark riots and did a brief stint in Trenton State Prison until a successful appeal overturned his conviction. Conviction. Snicks Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and other orators were constantly threatened or charged with inciting to riot as they crisscrossed the nation speaking to mass audiences. Inciting a riot. Congress passed so-called Rat Brown laws to deter speakers from crossing state lines to address mass audiences, lest a disturbance break out, leaving them vulnerable to federal charges and imprisonment, and numerous revolutionary organizers and orators were being imprisoned. See, this is what people don't understand. You, the people, you were deprived. Your government was depriving you of something that clearly you wanted because people were were um, showing up in droves, masses of people. They didn't mass audiences. That's you. That's us. That's me, right? We are showing up because we want to hear from them. And what is your state uh, doing? What is your state government doing? Denying you something that you want. You want this education. You want to hear from them. You want to know what's going on. You want to change your, uh, your thinking. But you were denied. And that is why we are in the state that we're in now. We have to look at it from that point. Not just what, uh, you know, black people were denied specifically, but the people, us, big uh, capital P people. Okay, this initial flow of revolutionaries into the jails and prisons began to spread a revolutionary, uh, let's see, hold on one second, I want to go back to that, um, uh, I want to go back to that uh, um, paragraph. Snicks Rat Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and other orators were constantly threatened or charged with inciting to riot as they crisscrossed the country speaking to mass audiences, us, Congress passed so-called Rat Brown laws to deter speakers from crossing state lines to address mass audiences, lest a disturbance break out, leaving them vulnerable to federal charges and imprisonment, which is where they are now. And numerous revolutionary organizers and orators were being imprisoned. And this is where it started. And this is where Sundiata Akoli is for instant because he was a revolutionary organizer. 
This initial flow of revolutionaries into the jails and prisons began to spread a revolutionary nationalist hue throughout New Africans behind the walls. New African prisoners were also influenced by the domestic revolutionary atmosphere and the liberation struggles in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Small groups began studying on their own or in collectives. The works of Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton, the Black Panther newspaper, the militant newspaper... Uh, the militant newspaper, contemporary national liberation struggle leaders Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Jomo Kenyatta, Franz Fanon, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh, and Mao Zedong, plus Marx, Lenin, and Bakunin too. Increasing numbers of new African and third world prisoners became more conscious of national liberation politics. The percentages of new African and third world prisoners increased while the percentage of white prisoners decreased throughout U.S. prisons. Under this onslaught of rising national liberation consciousness, increased percentages of new African and third world prisoners and decreased numbers of white prisoners, the last of the prison's overt segregation policies fell by the wayside. The New African Independence Movement. The seeds of Malcolm took further root on March 29, 1968. On that date, the Provisional Government of the Republic of New Africa, RNA, was founded at a convention held at the Black-owned 20 Grand Motel in Detroit. Over 500 grassroots activists came together to issue a declaration of independence on behalf of the oppressed black nation inside North America. And the new African independence movement, the NAIM, was born. Since then, blacks desiring an independent black nation have referred to themselves and other blacks in the U.S. as new Africans. That same month, March 68, during Martin Luther King's march in Memphis, angry youth on the fringes of the march broke away and began breaking store windows, looting and firebombing. A 16-year-old boy was killed and 50 people were injured in the ensuing violence. This left Martin profoundly shaken and questioning whether his philosophy was still able to hold the youth to a nonviolent commitment. On April 4th, he returned to Memphis seeking the answer through one more march and found an assassin's bullet instead. Ghettos exploded in flames one after another across the face of America. The philosophy of black liberation surged to the forefront among the youth, but not the youth alone. Following a series of police provocations in Cleveland on July 23, 1968, new Libya movement activists there set an ambush that killed several policemen. A 40-ish Ahmed Evans was convicted of the killings and died in prison 10 years later of cancer. More CIA dope surged into the ghettos from the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia. Revolutionaries stepped up their organizing activities on both sides of the wall. Behind the walls, the new African percentage steadily increased. COINTELPRO attacks. In 1969, COINTELPRO launched its main attack on the black liberation movement in earnest. It began with the mass arrest of Lumumba Shakur and the New York Panther 21. 
It followed with a series of military raids on Black Panther Party offices in Philadelphia, Baltimore, New Haven, Jersey City, Detroit, Chicago, Denver, Omaha, Sacramento, and San Diego, and was capped off with a four-hour siege that poured thousands of rounds into the Los Angeles BPP office. Fortunately, Geronimo Gijaga, decorated Vietnam vet, had earlier fortified the office to withstand an assault, and no Panthers were seriously injured. However, repercussions from the outcome eventually drove him underground. All right, beautiful people, we are going to have to leave it there. There is much more to come, so I hope you will join me next week. But that is our show, um, and hopefully we'll have good news about a date for the release of Sundiata Akoli. Um, have a great week. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer. We just got the beautiful news that Sundiata Akoli is home with his family after almost 50 years.